Welcome to Youth Talk Climate, an environmental issues podcast by young people for young people. This podcast is created in association with the Alliance for Climate Education. Now, let's talk lakes. Around the United States and around the world, communities rely on their local lakes. For today's episode, we focus on one such community in south central Wisconsin. The city of Madison effectively exists on an isthmus between the Monona and Mendota lakes, and these lakes are central to the lives of almost every resident. Despite this, Madison's lakes face major threats today. To learn more about these threats and what can be done about them, Mario Conacasco interviewed Paul Dearlove from Wisconsin's Clean Lakes Alliance. Once again, you're listening to Youth Talk Climate. My first question would be, what's your name? Um, my name is Paul Dearlove, and I am the Deputy Director of Clean Lakes Alliance, or a, a nonprofit headquartered in Madison, Wisconsin. So what is Clean Lakes Alliance, and what are they trying to do to help the lakes? Our lakes right now are probably our, our one of our, among our greatest assets, right, as a community. But if they're allowed to continue to degrade, if we start to tolerate cyanobacteria blooms and beach closures as a normal way of life, well, then the community becomes less enjoyable to live in um, and the lakes become more at more liabilities actually than assets. So Clean Lakes Alliance is a, is a nonprofit organization. Uh, we're relatively young. You know, we were founded 10 years ago, 2010. Clean Lakes Alliance tries to raise the, the level of importance of our lakes uh, in the community agenda. Like we want uh, people to prioritize our surface waters. We also are a fundraising vehicle for the lakes. So we try to get people out on the water, enjoying the lakes, understanding their, their importance, understanding what the challenge, uh, challenges are and how everybody can be a part of that solution. You know, every individual has an impact on the lakes for better or for worse. So we try to point people in a direction of how they can be effective change agents for our, for our lakes by what they do in their own yards, for instance. And we try to raise money for the lakes. So we host fundraising events and we raise dollars in order to give money as grants to partners that are doing water quality work um, and to fund our own programs. And what would those programs be? So examples of, of programs that Clean Lakes Alliance has evolved in, one is we have a big lake monitoring initiative that's been ongoing for the last several years. Um, we call it our lake forecast initiative. Um, there's actually an app associated with it. Um, we have a, a network of over 70 volunteers, um, oftentimes lakefront residents, who go to the end of their piers or at, go to the nearest beach and they take water quality tests and make observations of water quality conditions and they report that to the app. So um, lakeforecast.org is a website and it's an app that you can uh, download to your, to your smartphone. And it basically offers interactive maps of our lakes and you can see in any given day in the summer which beaches are open, which are closed, and uh, what kind of conditions all our monitors are reporting around the, the, the near shore areas of, of all five lakes. So that's an example of us trying to get the word out in terms of how the lakes are doing from day to day. Um, when cyanobacteria blooms are forming, when beaches might be closing, uh, so we can get the word out about that. Um, another thing we're trying to do, I'll give you a couple more examples. One is I mentioned trying to get individuals 
participating in the solution to our water quality problems. We try to explain that there are certain simple actions that any individual and, and particularly homeowners can take in order to help our lakes. And so we promote, uh, along with our, a number of other partners, a top 10 actions list that you can do at your home. So that would include things like um, building and planting a small rain garden to collect water off your roof downspouts or your driveway and help absorb that water into the ground versus sending it down our storm sewer systems and into the lakes untreated. Um, it's, it includes actions like installing rain barrels on our down, roof downspouts so that we actually capture some of this water and can use it in our gardens or to water our lawn again, versus sending it straight down to the storm sewers to um, affect our lakes and cause flooding or other damages. We even promote things like composting. You might not think composting relates to the lakes, but the more people um, get into the practice of recycling organic material in their own yards and using it for their own benefits, the less waste is generated that then sits on the street curb to get collected by your local municipality that can leach phosphorus into the, into the streets. And we promote like using native plants. So the more you use plants that and wildflowers and grasses that basically evolved over time in our area, the more hardy those plants are going to be, the more drought resistant they will be, the less time it will take to keep them healthy. A lawn takes a lot of time mowing, adding fertilizer, adding, you know, some people add pesticides to keep the weeds down. It's a very intensive management type of landscape um, versus a native wildflower garden that requires a lot less maintenance. It helps improve stormwater by allowing those that water to infiltrate because those plants have such deep roots that it sort of channels the water into the ground better. And it creates habitat because pollinators like butterflies and songbirds have evolved over time to rely on those seeds or those uh, beneficial insects that feed on those various plants for their survival. So you're actually helping the local wildlife as much as you're help helping water quality in general. What is your definition of climate change? If I can make the distinction between climate change and weather, weather reflects what happens from the day to day or year to year. And climate change really considers a much longer period of record and looks at how climate patterns change and evolve over longer periods of time. So it's sort of patterns of, of, of how precipitation and temperature change on, on the average. So like a unusually cold or warm winter is not climate change. Um, but if you start seeing unusually cold or unusually warm winters um, consistently over many years or decades, that is climate change. How is climate change affecting the lakes in Madison? Uh, you know, taking our winters, uh, we have essentially lost about a month of ice cover on our lakes because average winter temperatures have risen to that level. So we have less time where ice anglers can get out on, on the frozen surface. Ice skaters or whatever other type of recreational activities have been changing over the years because we, we have less opportunity to participate in activities on a frozen lake surface. Uh, weather is increasing. So for instance, if we get a, a summer rainstorm, these days it's more likely that that summer rainstorm is going to be very intense in nature. We're going to get a lot of rain falling very intensely over a short period of time, um, which is a lot harder for the landscape to absorb that, that amount of water falling that quickly. Uh, last year was the, the fifth wettest year 
on record in Madison. And the year before, 2018, was the second wettest. And 2016, which is, you know, only four years back, was the sixth wettest. So that's, those are sort of indications of climate change, right? It's a a pattern developing um, over multiple years or, or decades. Why is Lake Health important to people and animals? Water-dependent wildlife need freshwater, clean, healthy lake ecosystems um, in order to flourish. So a lot of there's a lot of wildlife that we enjoy in the Madison area that are dependent on our lakes, and the only reason why we see them is because because the lakes are here. Um, so for for those reasons, they're very important, and one of the reasons why we our concern about climate change is, is climate. Climate doesn't only affect us in terms of what we see falling from the sky or, or the temperature that we feel when we go out, outside and how that's changing, but it, it changes the ecology and the ecosystem of our waterways. Surface waters that get warmer as a result of rising air temperatures basically provide conditions that are more suitable to certain species over other species. So, um, for instance, to give you a concrete example, walleye, a very popular game fish that we um, try to catch in our lakes, is a cool water species. You know, they require cool, clear water in order to, to, to survive. If our water temperatures start to increase, the amount of habitat that's available for walleye start to decrease. Um, at the same time, panfish or largemouth bass, which are warmer water species, uh, will tend to do even better and they will be more successful. So you, you can start to have these shifts in, in, um, and this is, in this example, we're just talking about fish, but you can start getting changes in, in fish communities or other biological communities in the lakes. How does an unhealthy lake system affect pets and what should lake goers look out for? Yeah, great, great question. Because um, a, a lot of us are, are dog owners. I'm a dog owner my, myself. I take my dog for walks. Occasionally we go to a local park or a beach area where dogs might be allowed. And, you know, you're always concerned about what your dog is swimming in because they're just like a small child. You, you can't, it's hard to control what they're actually ingesting. So they might be uh, drinking the water. Um, uh, they can go into water and then uh, start to clean off their fur by licking their, their fur when they get out of the water. And so any contaminants that might be present, um, basically is the dog or, or pet is being exposed to those contaminants. The one of the, uh, probably the two biggest issues of, of concern for us are both bacteria related. Uh, one is cyanobacteria, which is um, uh, more commonly referred to as uh, blue-green algae, but it is a bacteria. It's not, it's not a true algae. It's a photosynthesizing bacteria, which can be toxic. And um, the, the blooms, a cyanobacteria bloom means there's a lot of cyanobacteria present in the water. And these uh, photosynthesizing bacteria are also uh, can regulate their buoyancy. And so they want to get close to the sunlight and they regulate their buoyancy in order to get to the surface. So they float and they create these scums. So usually on a nice, hot, summer, calm very calm day, not a lot of wind, um, particularly after you get a lot of rainfall preceding that time period where a lot of nutrients like phosphorus get re- washed into the lakes, you start to get these cyanobacteria blooms. And they look like spilled paint, uh, for lack of a better reference um, or descriptor, on the surface. And as that bacteria starts to die, 
it can release toxins that are very potent and they can affect public health and they can kill wildlife. Um, they can cause fish kills. And we've seen that before in the, and um, people have lost their pets that way as a result of that. The other type of bacteria is E. coli and E. coli bacteria is found in uh, the guts of warm-blooded animals. And so when, the, when animals, like any warm-blooded animal defecates, that material is just full of bacteria. And if that is allowed to wash into the water, then that introduces E. coli bacteria. And E. coli is a indicator bacteria that um, indicates that pathogens are probably present in the water as well. So um, a leaking sewer system, uh, geese that are at the beach and defecating on the beach, um, manure that might be spread on a farm field that gets in the lake, all those are sources of E. coli. Um, and, uh, and if, if you have high E. coli levels in the water, you increase your chance of exposure to pathogens that can make you sick. You mentioned when talking about the blue-green algae and when also talking about E. coli, you mentioned manure and phosphorus. How do these get into the lakes and what is their impact? So um, we could start with manure first. Um, we have uh, a very strong uh, dairy industry in our region and especially in the northern part of the watershed. So if you think of the five Yahara lakes, uh, Mendota, Monona, uh, Wabisa, Kaganza, and Lake Wingra, um, those lakes form a chain. And, and the, at the top of the chain or higher in the landscape is Lake Mendota. And then you, the, the lowest lake in, the, in elevation in the chain is Lake Kaganza. And everything in the watershed, which is the land area that drains to the lakes, um, also kind of goes from uphill to downhill. And above Lake Mendota and the, and the higher elevation reaches of the watershed, there's a st really strong dairy presence. So that we have a lot of um, livestock operations that those livestock are always eating and they're always pooping. And so there's a lot of manure that's generated as a result of the, the milk um, that's produced that we drink. Uh, the more milk that's produced, the more manure that's produced. And we're, we're producing more milk than ever before. And that manure, when used appropriately, is a, is a very uh, good resource for uh, the agricultural community. It's, it's um, full of nutrients that crops need to grow. Um, and to treat manure, use manure, it's spread on farm fields so that those crops can, can use the, the manure. But manure is also very hard to transport. And, and, and it's caustic, it's, it's very hard on equipment, um, and there's a lot of it. So that's why you have storage lagoons that hold manure, and there's, um, we're always trying to look for different ways of composting that manure or processing it in some way. Um, if, you, if you have more manure than the crops can take up, uh, there's a greater risk that that manure on the landscape is going to not be used by the crops, but instead wash off the fields and there's into farm ditches and then into streams that then flow into the lakes. So that's how manure get, gets in. If we have too much of it and we can't safely spread it, so that's effective for crop growth. In terms of phosphorus, phosphorus is, manure contains phosphorus, but there are other materials that contain phosphorus like soil in general, soil particles, um, any organic material, um, and in particular, we look at uh, fall leaf uh, debris. So in our urban areas, leaves are falling off the trees, they're falling in the streets. And uh, a number of our municipalities have collection programs to get those leaves out of the street, but they can't keep the leaves out of the street on a continuous basis because the leaves are always falling during a short 
two month, say, window of time um, in the fall. And no matter how much equipment you have, you, you just can't keep up. So as those, are, as those leaves decay and decompose in the street, uh, they release phosphorus that's contained in the, in the leaf and act as a tea bag kind of effect and water runs through those leaves or leaf piles and they get into the storm drains and then those storm drains of course deliver untreated stormwater runoff right to our lakes. Um, phosphorus, is just, it, it takes only one pound of phosphorus to generate 500 pounds of algae growth. So uh, the multiplier effect is huge. You have a little bit of phosphorus and it, its potency is so high that it, it contributes to um, uh, big algae blooms in our, in our lakes and turns them green. How would you try to convince somebody to take these steps? Somebody who doesn't necessarily believe in climate change and sums it all up to an act of mother nature. I guess I have a, a more of a scientific background and, you know, so data, I try to base my own decisions on information and data that I have available to me. And so with the profession that I'm in, I'm always looking at data related to water quality. And so I can see trends um, and impacts like cause and effect uh, to a large degree when it comes to practices uh, or projects that are put in place on the landscape or action behavior change actions that happen um, on a large scale basis and what those actions or practices do to water quality and do for water quality. Um, so I see that and I, I also see the trends um, when it comes to climate and weather patterns and and what that means in terms of delivery of contaminants and phosphorus in particular to our waters. You know, so intuitively it makes sense, but also I'm seeing it in the actual data over many, many decades. And I see the impacts that it has on our waters. So a lot of these, these relationships are, are pretty well actually understood in the scientific uh, community. But you're right, the challenge is then communicating that science to the general public. And unfortunately, a lot of things do become politicized too, and people don't necessarily want to believe in the data, um, or they might think that science science is being twisted or used to the uh, to, to certain politicians' advantage over others. And you know, looking at it just in terms of like taking the politics out of it and looking at it just in terms of how it's affecting ecosystems, it's having a dramatic effect. It is, and and that almost undebatable. I mean, you, you can look at the data and you can isolate the variables to a large degree and you can see it happening. And that's of concern. That's of, of concern because wildlife and ecosystems are usually things that are built over very, very long periods of time. And when you have short, shorter impacts and in geologic time, climate change is very, has been very rapid, right? We've been seeing this over a, a few decades. Um, and normally ecosystems evolve and develop over eons. So you're getting this sudden change in a way that uh, organisms and ecosystems have a very difficult time responding to. And that's what I mean by like, what happens is you get these disruptions or imbalances in the ecosystem where maybe more unfavorable species like non-native introduced species that we have problems with, say like common carp or a, a, an aquatic weed that takes over our lakes called Eurasian water milfoil or the zebra mussel, which I know a lot of people have heard about. These are all introduced species 
that tend to do really well in these um, highly disturbed systems. And climate change is a type of disturbance that is affecting our ecosystems. They're favoring more tolerant species over more sensitive um, or intolerant species. What is Clean Lakes Alliance role in politics? And has Clean Lakes Alliance ever tried to introduce any form of legislation? Well, we are trying to affect policy. It's really at the local levels. So if, the, say, Dane County is considering a certain policy uh, that affects water quality, we would likely get involved. Whether we think it's going to be beneficial or harmful, I think it's important that policymakers at the local level know where Clean Lakes Alliance stands. And so we have been involved various times at, in local level policymaking. So as an example, probably most recently, um, we encouraged the formation and then participated in a task force that uh, the Dane County Board set up, which is called the Healthy Farms, Healthy Lakes Task Force. And as a contributing participant, Clean Lakes Alliance helped shape policy recommendations for how we can improve rural or agricultural uh, best management practices and, and, and what kind of changes could be made to county ordinances and policies that would help um, promote those type of best, best practices um, and what kind of support might be needed to the agricultural community to allow for that uh, policy to really take hold and have um, strong community buy-in. So the Healthy, Lakes, Healthy Farms, Healthy Lakes Task Force did recommend a number of policy changes related to the management of manure in particular. And, and, and part of that was encouraging manure processing or storage areas to become registered so that the, that the county knows the location of where large volumes of manure are being handled uh, to get a better handle on what's even happening in the watershed, for, for example, because information is power. The more you know about what's happening in the watershed, the better you can develop and apply strategies to address challenges associated with those, those issues. How does Clean Lakes Alliance help farmers reduce phosphorus runoff while also not creating an economical burden for farmers? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So earlier in our in our history as a, as a nonprofit organization, we helped uh, create a, a a sister or affiliate organization at the time um, called Yahara Pride Farms, and the idea behind Yahara Pride Farms is that a that it was a, an organization that was really led by farmers. Farmers ran were like you know farmers were the board of directors. Farmers were communicating with other farmers in terms of what they felt was working well on their farms and operations, and that also helped water quality. And it, it it's a, a fantastic model, and it was one of the first of its kind in, in the state here. Um, and we're lucky to have Yarhar Pride Farms today as, as an active participant in water quality improvement efforts in the watershed. And Yarhar Pride Farms is now its own independent 501c3 nonprofit organization that Clean Lakes Alliance still supports. You know, we still raise money uh, and, we, and, and, and allocate that money to support Yarhar Pride Farms efforts. We've, we give them grants and have contributed probably 
80% of our grants over the last 10 years have gone to agricultural causes. And that's like out of the 1.1 or $1.2 million in grants we've given out, probably about 800,000 or $800,000 or more of that, those dollars have gone to groups like Yohar Pride Farms to test new approaches like, how, like composting manure. Um, to make it easier to handle and and safer to to, to land apply, um, we've helped per, help them purchase equipment uh, that can inject manure into the ground versus spreading it on the on the land surface where it can wash into into the creeks. It's it, and we've we've supported the the funding of cost cost sharing so that if a farmer is interested in changing a practice or building in a new uh, procedure under their operations, uh, they get cost share assistance or financial assistance to allow that to happen. So we've been very active in, in, in helping farmers um, really pilot and test these new approaches to show that, they, that they're effective, not just for water quality improvement, but for protecting the farmer's bottom line. Because as we all know, farmers are in a difficult situation. You know, they're they're struggling economically um, and we're losing farms all the time because of uh, those economic challenges. So what the, the ideal situation is that we're finding practices, cover cropping, for instance, um, uh, or, or uh, taking marginal farmland out of production uh, because it's, it's actually losing money for the, for the farmer and instead putting that into uh, perennial or more permanent cover that keeps soil in place and prevents it from washing into the lakes. The more we can help the farmer solve the water quality issue and at the same time solve the, some of their economic challenges, I think the better off we're going to be at protecting the industry in a sort of a way of life in the watershed and protecting our lakes at the same time. So what is a what has your work taught you in the field of climate change that's not obvious to to most people? I would think uh, interrelationships. So um, everything's interconnected, and 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 some of these interconnections are are not very visible. But just like a like a food web, you know, if you envision a food web, that you have all these these subtle connections between organisms, right? And and all these connections are, are relationships and, and those relationships form the foundation of an ecosystem. And a, a fully functioning ecosystem, that web is very complex. Those interconnections um, are diverse. And the, the more simplified that web becomes, the more um, at risk the whole ecosystem is to collapse or to negative impacts. And what I'm what I've learned just through um, this profession and my work at Clean Lakes Alliance is the importance of these inter interconnections, uh, these linkages, and that we run a great risk of ignoring the more subtle connections. So I think, like, it, you know, we were talking about fish earlier. I think, like, when people think of the lakes, sometimes it's like the, one of the quickest things to, to envision is fish. Like, a lot of people fish, they catch fish. And they can identify a few different species of fish. So if, a, if the walleye fishery or the northern pike fishery or the largemouth bass fishery decline or are impacted in a negative way, people see that. They hear about it because anglers 
are out there and they experience it and then they talk and then they communicate that and they have concerns and and it's a, it's a big uh, form of recreation and it's noticeable. But what happens if the <clears throat> excuse me these small lesser known non-game fishes, uh, darters and and uh, different types of minnows, um, uh, small fish that you're not catching to put food on the table or or recreationally to catch a you know big muskie or something. When you start to lose those fish, who notices? But the but the impacts are still there. And they're rippling through the through that uh, whole ecosystem, and and it could be years before those impacts are felt in the in the game fish community. But by then, it could be too late. And so I think there's a, there's a combination of like recognizing that everything is connected, and when you have change that's a bad change, like we're not doing something appropriately on the landscape in that on the landscape, which then leads to more pollution. Uh, running off in our stormwater and, and getting into the lakes, that has an impact. And, that's imp and that could be very visible in terms of a cyanobacteria bloom that closes down a number of beaches, or it could be pretty invisible, like these small game fishes that are very sensitive to pollution that start to um, disappear over time. And pretty soon, things that were very reliant on those, those species, then they, you start losing those species. And it's just sort of like this cascading effect, um, or again, like we call it the, the ripple effect through, through the ecosystem. And we're always seeing that. And nature has a way of doing that itself, but we're accelerating that to a degree that has never been seen before. And we can, we can turn that. We can like that acceleration of negative impacts can be turned into positive impacts. And so I wouldn't be in this business if I didn't have a lot of hope and optimism. Because the last thing I want to do is go, you know, daily to a job where I, it's just a hopeless situation. Um, and if it's something that the, the, the environment itself, the earth itself can just sort of self-heal and say, hey, this is just a normal, you know, process that will, it's going through its normal cycle. Well, that's not very inspiring either, right? Um, but what I know is that it's not, like we're creating these impacts. It's not just a natural cycle. Um, it's human caused, uh, many of these things that we're talking about. And there are behaviors or actions or decisions that we're making that can be changed. And that gives me great hope. Um, and we're seeing it. We're seeing people taking action and we're seeing awareness levels go up and we're seeing a, a greater willingness by the community to invest in um, the, the solutions that are going to be needed to make sure that our lakes are in good shape for our kids and future generations. So that's what gives me inspiration. It gives me hope uh, for what's still to come. I would like to know what's in the future for Clean Lakes Alliance and is COVID-19 affecting this or not? Great. Well, yeah, thanks for, thanks for the question. One thing that we're really we're not waiting for COVID nineteen uh, to to um, run its course. Um, is uh, we are we have, we have just recently convened a nineteen partner and collaborator initiative called the Yahara Clean Compact, um, which we're very excited about. So over the last uh, eight years, we have been following a roadmap to cleaner cleaner lakes. And it's, a, it's an action plan for the community on how to reduce phosphorus, 
to the lakes to a degree that will basically double the number of days that our lakes are clear, algae bloom free, and our beaches are open, you know, in general. And we have specific targets on how to reach that. We have specific strategies um, that uh, we've outlined to implement um, by our various partners uh, to get to that goal. And we are now in this sort of exciting point here where we have uh, reconvened the original partners that were involved in developing that roadmap. And we've expanded the partnership. So that includes community groups that weren't even involved before. Um, that we think are going to be valuable to taking a fresh look at, at the roadmap and updating it and making it more robust and really looking at the timelines and what we can accomplish as a community to fast forward our progress uh, to getting to that, that vision that we have for the lakes. Because we find it like completely unacceptable that in this day and age, in a typical summer, we have the number of beach closures that we have that we have the number, the number of days when you go to the lake or go down to the Memorial Union and it looks like a putrid green pea soup mess on the lakes, that's unacceptable. We have an incredible scientific community here. We have incredible partners, um, agencies, nonprofits, uh, you name it, that are actively working on water quality issues. And all we need is the community will and the political will to invest the necessary resources to make these things happen, right? And so this Yahara Clean Compact is a way to do that. It's bringing these, all these partners and the scientific community together, again, take a fresh look at our plan, see how we're doing, take stock in our progress to date, and look at the strategies that we're following now and what new strategies are either new technologies, new strategies that are available to us or that are on the horizon that we can tap into in order to uh, reach that vision sooner than, than later. Because um, we always like to say that, what, like, why should uh, a child that's born today have to basically graduate high school and, and move away or go off to college before they could ever hope to experience a clean lake? Like, and that's some of the, 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 the um, current roadmap that we're under as like a 20 year timeline for implementation. Um, you know, we're, we're making good progress on that, but do we want to wait another decade for this? Can we wait another decade? Uh, so the reason for the R Clean Compact is to really reinvigorate uh, the, the lake rehabilitation efforts that are currently underway and build on our successes in a way that's going to help us reach those targets and help us reach reach those conditions that are gonna allow for the beaches to stay open and the water to remain clean for everybody to enjoy them. What would be some of that new technology and what will they do for the lakes? Well, let, let me give an example that also gives um, some kudos to our partners. Um, let's take Dane County, for instance. Dane County has initiated an effort to remove very phosphorus rich uh, stream bed sediments from the tributaries that drain to our lakes. So over the past decades, over many decades, as we changed the way we use the land and we've um, developed the, the landscape and we've um, introduced major farming operations. And before we kind of, and this goes way back, you know, this goes back to like uh, Dust Bowl era, right? Um, before we knew that we should be 
protecting our soils and making sure that erosion and runoff don't send productive topsoil into our waters. That, that was kind of a, a, a real uh, major eye-opening that we need to we need to sort of rethink how we use the landscape and what we can do to correct past wrongs. And so Dane County came up with the innovative way, uh, approach of removing this, we'll call it legacy streambed sediment uh, that washed in over many years in the past, right? And just had been sort of sitting at the bottom of our streams and slowly releasing phosphorus from that sediment on the, on the stream bottom. And so their program, which is called, now called, I think through the media, suck the muck, clever, right? Is intended to sort of clear the arteries in a way, uh, remove that phosphorus rich material from the stream beds and, um, and, and sort of prevent that material from, from releasing slowly over time, bleeding in a way this phosphorus into our, into our lakes. So that's a, an example of a strategy that maybe we want to take a closer look at. If we can evaluate the true impact of removing that material and it's significant and it's cost effective, I don't know yet, but if, if it proves to be the case, um, maybe we want to invest more dollars there and less dollars somewhere else that we were, you know, or all of the above, who knows. Another example is like Yohar Pride Farms, one of our other partners, right? They are, they have a good model of cost sharing, getting cost sharing into farmers' hands and developing those trusting relationships, farmer to farmer relationships that are really encouraging a change in mindset in terms of how farmers manage uh, their own farming operations injecting manure, composting manure, uh, putting in cover crops, you know, doing all these different, thi di different things. And, and some of these, these strategies, like how to process manure more effectively, and do involve te techno sometimes technologies. Um, and sometimes they're just very basic technologies, but haven't really been tried on a very broad scale or, or, or across the, the, the larger sections of the watershed. And my hope is that those approaches are going to really move the dial in terms of what we're able to accomplish. And those are just a couple examples, but there's countless examples of technologies and, and approaches, um, both tried and trusted and true that have, that we've um, been implementing over, over multiple years and know that, are, that they're effective, and others that are a little less tested, that Clean Lakes Alliance and our role is to help test those approaches out, pilot those, those new approaches, um, see if they're effective, and if they are, find ways to um, get them in the, into the hands of the right people so that they can be implemented. That is all the questions that I have. Uh, I would just like to thank you again for having the time of your day to take this interview. Um, is there My anything pleasure. you would like to add? My pleasure. Yeah, no, I don't have anything to add. Thank you, Mario. I, um, I, I appreciate the, the good questions that you have. Um, you know, the connections between the lakes and, and climate change are, are really important. And, and I really appreciate how the, the questions were very far ranging, like everything from thoughts on climate change in general to like how the impacts to lakes and then how that sort of like affects people and their pets to um, what we're doing about it. Um, I think that's, that paints a really kind of complete picture uh, of what's happening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Youth Talk Climate. Special thanks to our guest Paul Dearlove from the Clean Lakes Alliance. 
This podcast was created by a group of Youth Action Fellows from the Alliance for Climate Education. Those fellows are Kali Gagan, Zella Milford, Sophie Smith, and of course today's host, Mario Kanakasco. Thank you for listening to Youth Talk Climate, and be sure to follow us on Instagram at Youth Talk Climate. Also, check out our partner, Youth Think Climate, on Instagram at Youth Think Climate, a youth-run, climate-centered magazine. That's all, folks.